Welcome to the Darkness Dwells podcast. I am Jason White. And I am Michael Schutz. And we are the Darkness Dwells duo. Bum, 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 bum. Oh, I like that. I don't know where that came from. Okay. I'm whipping my cape around. <laughs> Yay! No. Uh, <laughs> so how, how are you doing, Michael? I'm doing pretty good. I have almost hit 50,000 words wow. on the next new book, so that feels good. Um, That's awesome. And I also want to say, and I wanted to say this on the show, to let people know that they're not alone out there. I've been, I've been fighting through some pretty nasty depression yeah. the last couple months. So, you know, getting that, reaching that word count, and I think it pretty much on the, on the last third of it, so it's going to be going to be pretty short but uh it feels good because you know it's really difficult to write for me when you know when the depression hits yeah. so you know i keep i keep fighting and i get things done and i keep you know moving forward even if it's just really really small small stuff every day yeah. but you know well that's so. good that's good that you can move forward like that yeah so uh I bet you the last, uh, without getting too political or anything, I bet you the last week hasn't been easy. Yeah, I don't want to start start politicizing on the show, but it's not been good. No, it's not been good. It's been kind of scary, but uh, yeah, we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna move along from that. And uh, as for me, uh, well, uh, as everyone knows, Crystal Lake Publishing is our. Uh, is our sponsor and we're so happy to have them as a sponsor and they are going to be doing a uh, an anthology based on the movie Chud and uh, that's the uh, in case anyone doesn't know that's the uh, horror movie from like uh, 1980 oh god is it 84 I think I think it's 84 yeah and uh, which is which tickles me to death because <laughs> I've I love that movie and I've loved it forever uh, so I think people uh, should, uh, you know, should submit a story. It's gonna, they're gonna be opening up submissions on uh, December the first, so uh, you should probably uh, get something down and uh, submit it. Go to uh, CrystalLakePublishing dot com. I think that's their website. Let me see here. And uh, CrystalLakePub. Yeah, check I the. Uh, yeah, check the. Uh, check the. Uh, yeah, dot com and check the uh, guidelines for that it's uh, it, to me this is like a, a a fun project just like the movie is kind of fun so uh there's there's been some uh, debate about the uh guidelines but i think that's just hyperbole mostly because of the uh the coincidence of the uh elect uh you, you know the american uh 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 the presidency, uh, you know, who won the presidency, and uh, I think uh, I think that honestly had a little bit of pe- uh, the reason why people were complaining about the the guidelines. But you know, soon that'll be forgotten. What's happening is Eric uh, S. Brown is uh, doing the uh, uh, doing the or editing the anthology, and and he's got the uh, the permission from the producers who. Uh, who own the rights to the movie and they've mailed to him a whole bunch of extra stuff that nobody has seen and he's going to be including it with the book so that's really awesome oh i didn't know that that's i'm really looking forward to this one um reading it i don't i don't think i'm going to uh 
to write up a story because I'm just having too much trouble thinking up something. But I love Chud, and this is going to be a great anthology to yeah. read. For me, this was like a all breaks <laughs> on every other project. I'm like, I got to write a story. Even if they don't, it's just an excuse to, you know, uh, to relax and have some fun with the story. That, that I would absolutely love to do because I'm not usually one who writes fan fiction but I always wanted to I just don't see the point because there's nothing I can really do with it uh, so this is like an excuse to go and have a little fun with something that I really enjoy so that's, gonna be great. So that's, that, that's my update is I'm going to be doing that and uh, I'm excited to do it Alright, so uh, speaking of sponsors, <laughs> as I just mentioned, Crystal Lake Publishing is our biggest sponsor, and we are more than happy to have them. They've been publishing since 2012, and they have quickly become one of the world's leading indie publishers of mystery, thriller, and suspense books with a dark fiction edge. And they have published uh, stories from the likes of Clive Barker and uh, Mercedes M. Yardley uh, you know, the list is really long. Uh, Mark Allen Gunnels, uh, Ramsey Campbell, three three of those authors, previous guests of, uh, of the Darkness Dwells podcast. So I highly suggest you go to crystallakepub.com and uh, not only check out their guidelines, but check out their books and uh, consider buying some because these guys are going somewhere. And I think... Uh, I don't know. Everything I've read from them has been pretty, like, really good. So I was a huge fan of Crystal Lake before. I was really surprised, actually, when you brought them up to me, Michael, and you're like, yeah, they're uh, interested in supporting the show. I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> they have a great editing team yeah. that I think it's really clear whenever you read anything that, that they publish. You know, they have uh, they do that really well. Yeah. So it's always got a good you know, professionalism shine to it. Very um, much so, yeah. Really high quality. High yeah. quality. And we are also sponsored by Audible.com. Now, Audible is a an Amazon company, but they specialize in audiobooks. And go to www.audibletrial.com slash darknessdwells and sign up for a free month-long membership trial membership i should add it's it's free so basically the free part is getting a free audiobook and you can choose any of their 180,000 uh uh titles in their catalog i actually think it's more than that now but basically if it exists on audiobook they probably have it and uh it's a really awesome i, I i've been a a member myself since oh god i don't know how long since their early inception anyway so I highly recommend that you uh, do so too. It's a great way of uh, fitting in some extra books for your reading list during the year. I'm going to suggest, uh, since our guest this week is Johnny Daggers, and we're going to be talking about his new book, I'm going to suggest that you uh, you go get yourself a copy of that. I've uh, listened to the audio, and it's pretty cool. Uh, I've enjoyed it a lot. It's written by Johnny Daggers, obviously, and uh, narrated by Johnny Daggers. It's uh, about an hour long, and it's unabridged, so check that out. And uh, so we're going to take a quick break now, and when we come back, we're going to discuss some news, and then when uh, we're done with that, we're going we're gonna to be talking with Johnny Daggers himself. The man himself. So stay tuned. Go nowhere. 
or die. <laughs> Everybody knows that the dice are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows the fight was fixed. The poor stay poor. The rich get rich. That's how it goes. Everybody knows. Everybody knows that the boat is leaking. Everybody knows the captain lied. Everybody got this broken feeling, like their father or their dog just died. Everybody talking to their pockets. Everybody wants a box of chocolates at the Longstem Road. All right, so, um, aside from the whole, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> everything that's been uh, buried by uh, what's been going on in America lately, um, uh, there has been a few uh, interesting tidbits of news. Yes. So what did the world goes on? <laughs> the world is moving on. So, uh, what did you find, Michael? I found out from I no, not iHorror, from uh, Horror Movies Canada, Yay. our favorite site there. Yes, Max Landis, um, son of John Landis, Max Landis is writing and directing a remake of An American Werewolf in London. Um, I know I've heard talk of, of this remake. I didn't know that Max Landis was behind it. I think that's going to make it at least worth a watch for curiosity's sake. But uh, I'm looking forward to this one a little bit more than I was before. Yeah, I I heard about that too, and it was uh, a surprise that uh, uh, Landis's son is uh, Max Landis is uh, is set to direct it. That's that makes it more interesting because you got to see what you know uh, the son's take is on it. You know what I mean? Yeah, are you are you a fan of the uh, a source material? Um, I am. It's it's a it's a weird movie because it's kind of funny. It's it's a little bit darkly comic. Yeah, you know, it's not like an all out horror comedy, but it's got that John Landis has that kind of quirkiness to him. So I've always liked the movie, but I'm always surprised whenever I'm like, oh, I should watch that again. Then it's like, oh, yeah, I forget it's, it's kind of quirky like yeah. this. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, the transformation, uh, the werewolf transformation is like one of the, the classic scenes of, of cinema all time. Um, I think it's, I think the only, uh, werewolf change that might be better was from season one of, uh, Hemlock Grove. Oh, yeah. Uh, a show that was on Netflix. Yeah, but, yeah. American American Werewolf in London. Yeah, good, good stuff. Yeah, that's that's one of my favorite uh, transformation scenes, and uh, the the one in uh, the first Howling movie. Uh, although both of them are a little bit drawn out, but I some people complain about that, but I I like it myself. I really like the uh, the Howling one too because like when the nails uh, kind of. 
uh, cut through the thing the tips of the fingers there's like blood on the nails and whatnot it, it looks like it's actually painful and well obviously the american werewolf in london uh transformation yeah. <laughs> looks painful too because the guy's screaming well <laughs> well he's transforming so you know they're just uh they're just awesome i, I love those uh, movies for that i need to watch the howling again it's yeah it's, been it's a good one decades decades for me and for my memory it's the best one of the of the entire franchise, which is typical, but yeah. the turn that the other Howling movies took are, is, uh, oof. you don't want to <laughs> go there. That's what I've heard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, speaking of sequels and such, uh, season two of Stranger Things is going to have some interesting cast additions. We've got Paul Reiser yeah. and Sean Astin joining the cast. Yeah, which uh, is... Uh, which is kind of strange. <laughs> uh, it it sounded strange to me, but reading the iHorror article, um, the Goonies is is apparently one of the uh, references that Stranger Things liked a lot. Yeah. So Sean Astin being in, in that one, and and just the whole I mean that was a classic of of my eighties childhood, the Goonies. So actually, that's a pretty good fit, I think. Um, and Paul Reiser as um, you know, he was the the corporate scumbag from Aliens. Yeah, the, the sequel to Alien. And so, and it sounds like he's almost reprising that that role. He's going to be a corporate scumbag in in season two as well. I think so. Which is good because he he's really good at doing that. He is. He is. You have I don't know why because he he's like he's he's like really nice and everything else he does you know I like mad about you and everything but he has that ability to take that and twist it a little bit so so he can do it disingenuously which yeah. I think is a really neat talent well you know there's a lot of actors who say it playing the bad guy is often fun and maybe that has something to do with it I I would I would always want to be the bad guy you know if I were an actor I'd I want that. I want that. Speaking of which, um, this isn't technically a piece of piece of news, but I've been watching these documentaries lately about David Prowse, who played Darth Vader, and uh, you know I didn't know this, but he's like banned from official Star Wars conventions because apparently in some press conferences early on, like after the original Star Wars, he was giving away information and speaking out of turn and. There's oh, yeah. like this feud with George Lucas, and that it wasn't David Prowse's face in Return of the Jedi when they take off Vader's mask. So not only did you know he was surprised when when it wasn't his voice, but then come Return of the Jedi, they filmed behind his back without him knowing the scene where they take off the helmet. So after three movies of him being, being Darth Vader, it wasn't even his face on scene. I think is a real shit move there by yeah. Lucas. That is maybe but maybe the guy's a dick. This made me think about that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> maybe it's like oh, David Prowse is a dick. I don't really don't. I he seems like a nice enough guy. He might be. You never. He, I, I think he could be a dick. You know, I I've watched these documentaries, and uh, he's actually really famous in England for being the Green Cross Code guy. He did these uh, traffic safety commercials. Oh yeah. That he's won awards for. He met the Queen and everything. So that's like his. I think that's his proudest accomplishment is what is what he he says. So that's anyway <laughs> behind the scenes for for one of Cinema's greatest villains. Yeah. 
which is uh which is really <laughs> which is kind of cool <laughs> i mean it, it's weird but uh you know how they would screw him over so much but uh, well he is darth vader after all he is but he's not allowed to say that anymore no you're not Darth Vader, but I was in that costume the whole time. Oh, yeah. We don't nope. care. Screw you. I'm George Lucas. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I have the power. Oh, God. Let's see. The only other thing that I had, um, also from iHorror, that's where I go from horror news, six hidden horror gems from the 70s. That's right. Another list. Yay. Uh, and you can find that list on my own Facebook page, Michael Shutt's Fiction. Um, and after uh, after the show, I will try to remember to put it up on, on the Darkness Dwells page as well. This is, uh, I'm going to be working my way through these. And hopefully there are some good ones, because some of these lists are, I don't know who puts them together. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'm looking forward to, uh, to taking a look at some of these. Cool. Well, that sounds uh, like a lot of fun. What, what's the name of the list again? Uh, six hidden horror gems from the nineteen seventies. Cool. I uh, that's one of my favorite. Uh, that in the eighties are my favorite horror movie t- period time periods. Um, yeah. Because they 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 did a lot of interesting things back then. The seventies are great. I love the seventies. I, I, if I had a time machine, I would go back to like nineteen seventy two, and and I get just a little bit of a jump on Stephen King's career. Yeah. But but I love the seventies. The cars, the music, and and their horror was so good. A lot of it was you know that misspent youth driving across America, you know, disappearing. Bad things happen if you smoke pot. <laughs> All these morality tales of the 70s that that are just a lot of fun yeah and yeah I, I the agree. development of gore in the in the 70s where they started going pretty good stuff yeah um the only thing i really have is something i already posted up on the page um and that is the witch director robert eagers or is it eggers i'm not sure is set to write and direct the nosferatu remake Ooh. Which is uh, which I find is really interesting on, on on a few different levels because they did I think it was 1979. Speaking of 70s horror, uh, I think it was 1979. They did do a Nosferatu uh, remake, and it's a pretty cool film. I like it a lot. Um, so it'll be interesting to see uh, what uh, Robert Eggers or Eggers does to it because uh, I just love the way that vampire looks the Nosferatu Orlock sort of uh you know the 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 long front teeth the pointed ears the bald head he 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 doesn't look human and uh it's just uh i i find that that that's the type of vampire i like he's creepy and, and ugly and uh and vicious he's definitely the kind of vampire that that Stephen King likes and that's just an iconic image you're right the nosferatu yeah really and they, damn creepy they even uh borrowed that uh speaking of stephen king salem's lot the movie adaptation heavily borrowed from i'm talking about the uh actually this is around i think 80 or 70s late 70s as well as the yeah, that, uh, that was 79 wasn't it yeah i think it was 79 78 79 when they did the uh, uh the adaptation for salem's lot 
the TV or the television um, uh, miniseries, uh, that vampire looks a hell of a lot like uh, like Nosferatu, uh, except his skin is blue. Of course, uh, the Nosferatu that we're familiar with the uh, the what 1922 film, it's obviously in black and white, so we don't know. <laughs> If he's blue or not, but he doesn't look blue. He looks pale, very pale. And uh, so, so is the uh, remake of uh, the Nosferatu film. I don't know if there's any other Nosferatu remakes, which is funny because you know the source material is Dracula. So, are they in sense making a Dracula film? <laughs> <laughs> there is. Um, it's it's kind of a, a pseudo Nosferatu remake. With was it? Wasn't John Lithgow, um, Gary Oldman, Shadow of a Shadow of a something? Oh yeah, that was uh, Willem Dafoe and Shadow yes, of the Vampire. Willem Dafoe. I think. Yes, yes, that's an interesting movie. They, it plays with the with the Nosferatu. Yeah, uh, movie was, uh, making uh, the vampire that yeah. they used uh, for the or the 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 uh, actor they used to play Orlock or Nosferatu. Uh, is actually yeah. a vampire, <laughs> and people start uh, disappearing from from the set. <laughs> it's a good movie. I liked it a lot when I saw it. And Willem Dafoe really uh, nailed that part. It was like that role was made for him. I like Willem Dafoe yeah, a me lot. Too. He's a very uh, odd kind of actor. He does a lot of odd roles, and that's one reason why I like him. Although he might, yeah, he, he might disagree. <laughs> Talking about bad guys, he plays a good bad guy. Yeah, he does. He's a very excellent bad guy. Um, so uh, that's that's all I have. Um, so we're going to take another break. And uh, when we get back, we're going to be talking with uh, Johnny Daggers. With unmatched success since 2012, Crystal Lake Publishing has quickly become one of the world's leading indie publishers of horror and thriller books with a mystery and suspense edge. With stories, interviews, and essays by the likes of Wes Craven, Neil Gaiman, Jack Ketchum, Ramsey Campbell, Kevin Lucia, Jasper Bark, Mercedes M. Yardley, Mark Ellen Gunnels, and Clive Barker, you'll want to dive right in. Crystal Lake Publishing www.crystallakepub.com Hi. Welcome to the Patreon campaign for Crystal Lake Publishing. I'm Jasper Bark. Let me explain to you why I was thrilled to be an advocate. I've been working with Crystal Lake Publishing since the publication of their first official release, the anthology for The Night Is Dark. Over the last three years, I've watched them grow into one of the world's leading indie publishers of dark fiction. But times are hard for indie publishers, and that's why they need your support. 
not only to pay the huge number of people who work tirelessly behind the scenes to make certain that each book is of the highest professional standard, but also to pay all anthology contributors a top professional rate, to include artwork in every single one of their books, and to pay a quarterly bonus on royalties to all their authors. In return, they are offering some truly amazing perks, so please do take a moment to go and check them out. The perks are offered over two tiers, so there is something to suit everyone's budget. And, because this is Patreon, you can put a cap on the amount of money you spend each month, so you will never go above budget. But, the main reason to support Crystal Lake Publishing is because they build communities. Communities of readers and writers, of artists and filmmakers, and genre enthusiasts of every stripe. And that's why I am so proud to be an associate, why I was thrilled to be an advocate for this campaign, and why, most importantly, I hope that you will join me. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome back. This week we are pleased to welcome a very special guest to the show. Johnny Daggers is a film director, scriptwriter, novelist, musician, and model, among many, many other things. His directorial debut is the 2010 short film Sowin. Is that how you pronounce it, John? Uh, John? That is correct. Okay, that would be that would be the correct Gaelic way to say it. Here in the exactly. states, everyone says Sam Hain, but yes, I like to say Sowin myself, but you never know, right? All right, <laughs> cool. So, doing it right. Yeah, so Samhain Night Feast, which won an award at the uh, Bastards of Horror Short Film Festival. He's gone on to direct Caustic Zombies and Blood on the Reel. Recently, he's published the illustrated novel Neverlasting, which had Daggers hailed as the modern-day Edgar Allan Poe of his generation by TE Magazine. Welcome to the show, Johnny. Oh, thank you. It's okay. a pleasure to be on the show. And uh, thank you for your interest and enthusiasm for our little show here. That uh, logo that you created for us uh, was really kick-ass. I love it. Oh, I'm glad you liked that. It was just something I threw together to you know, help promote this show. I, I'm familiar with a few of your episodes, and I've always enjoyed the shows that I've heard, so it's an honor to be here. Yeah, when, when you first contacted me, uh, I went and looked you up, and uh, of course, so the first thing I saw of you was your picture, and I was like, oh, awesome, <laughs> because your <laughs> command of the camera is fantastic, and uh, I don't know, um, you have a very sort of gothic and punk, uh, well, uh, air about you, and it's very deliberate, obviously, but uh, I just... Yes, think, you, you've got the look, man. Yeah, for sure. Uh, well, oh, there's one, There's one thing I like to do on the show is I like to break the ice, and usually it's with something silly, so I have to ask, does it yeah. hurt getting a tattoo on your head? It honestly does not, and that's not me trying to sound tough and macho. Um, I just really have a high pay, pain tolerance and, cool. and rather impervious to, to any extreme pain, but uh, it actually was really relaxing for my head because my entire head, front and back sides, is completely covered yeah. uh, along with the rest of my body. But uh, <laughs> for the head, the most irritating part of it wasn't the tattoo itself. It was that I had to lay down and stick my head in a donut while oh, yeah. the tattooist was doing it, and I just thought that the donut was more uncomfortable than anything. Aside from that, I was literally on the verge of falling asleep because it's getting tattooed is very 
therapeutic. And since we're breaking the ice of the show, um, you know, I always say that when I'm having a bad day, the first thing that I really want is a tattoo. And so I always joke and say, you could tell by looking at me how many bad days I've had because I'm covered. Uh, but there's there's just something about the buzz of the tattoo machine and just, you know, the feeling of getting ink that's very therapeutic for me. So Yeah, there's a lot of people who feel that way. Um, I have a few tattoos myself, uh, not not even a tenth or a hundredth towards what you have. But, uh, you know, honestly, if I, if I could, I probably would. Yeah, I'm very sad that I really don't have much room left. So, <laughs> yeah. it's at that point people always ask where are you going to go next, but at that point, you know, some of my uh some of my tattoos would have been, you know, 25 nearly probably around there. I'm I'm 42 now. So, some of my tattoos are, you know, pushing 25 years of age. I can always go back at those colored in or, you know, there's always yeah. something that I can that I can do. Um you know, or my dad always says, you know, just get really fat and stretch your skin, and then you'll have more room. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe. I <laughs> <laughs> but I, I really would prefer not to go that route. So, speaking of your of your dad, where where did you grow up? I am actually from Western Pennsylvania, about forty minutes east of Pittsburgh. Cool. Um, you know, there's always like that transition from when you were a child to now, when you're an adult. And look, when I look at people who uh, who have like you know the amount of tattoos as you do, um, and you have this sort of creepy presence that you know, like I said earlier, is very uh, it, it, you know it's intentional. The the whole gothic uh, uh, and punk crossover. Uh, but I have to wonder, what were you like as a kid? Actually, I was uh, depressed, even though. I always joke because this makes, I'm sure my parents feel absolutely terrible. See, my dad and I were like one and the same. My dad, my mother and father got married when they were very young. My mother was 17, my father was 18, and my father was really into punk at the time, so I grew up with bands like The Clash and The Ramones and, uh, you know, he even like some of the 70s metal, um, you know, Black Sabbath and so forth. So I grew up with a diverse, really cool uh, set of music on my playlist and my mother was always more of the reserve type person but they were they were wonderful loving parents and uh, for some reason ever since I was four or five years of age I've always been really obsessed with the macabre and in fact one of the things that we talk about in the foreword of my book is that uh, my mother, I was four years of age and my mother walked into the kitchen and found me sitting on the floor crying and she's like honey what's wrong why are you crying and at that point in time, only being four years old, I had realized that the average lifespan was 74 years of age. Yeah. So I remember crying and telling my mother, I only have 70 years of life left to live. And she's like, <laughs> oh, why are you even thinking about this? You know, so it's, I was always something about the macabre before I ever saw a horror film. Just always, it's always been... Uh, embedded within me somehow, uh, but I grew up listening to you know Clash, the Ramones, Devo, Stray Cats, which actually I blame my father for corrupting me <laughs> with the tattoos because he doesn't have any tattoos. But I remember listening to the first Stray Cats album when I was roughly five years old. My dad had it on vinyl, and I'm just looking at the album cover and I see these awesome greaser-looking guys covered in tattoos with like pin-up illustrations on the back of their record cover and old 50s cars and I said to my dad, I said, someday when I grow up I'm going to get a Stray Cats tattoo and sure enough, when I was old enough to get my first piece, that was the first thing that I got was the Stray Cats tattoo and then from there I realized 
wow, like getting tattooed doesn't hurt. It's actually therapeutic. And then, because I swore, I swore I'd only ever have one tattoo when yeah. I was 18. And now I'm completely covered. So, but. What was the draw to tattoos? Like, was, was it the uh, stray cats or, or was there something else? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess aside from being a goth and a punk, I've, I've, I'm a huge rockabilly fan. And uh, still, in fact, I'm going to see Brian Setzer at the end of this month. Um, but yeah, I was just like looking at the Stray Cats and that really developed my love for 50s culture and, and the greaser style and the pinup girls and just seeing them with their tattoos. I just thought they were like the coolest looking guys that I had ever seen at the age of five. And uh, oddly enough, when I was years back when I was doing a podcast, um, I was publishing a rockabilly magazine called Turn Up Speed Magazine, and I uh, got to interview Lee Rocker from the Stray Cats. And cool. uh, you know, I told him that story about looking at the album cover when I was four or five and wanting a Stray Cats tattoo. And you know, it just it really made him feel old. But uh, to me, like <laughs> those those guys were like such a huge influence, more than just musically. Like I still love their music to this day, but just fashion wise and culture and making me. Uh, delve back into the 50s when I got a little bit older and really discovering a lot of the great 50s films and music and uh, actors and it just it really changed my whole life so yeah um, so were you also big into uh, movies and books while growing up um, I was I was really into it's, it's funny because being a horror filmmaker people always ask well what was your first love of film and I, I think like anything with my parents, they, they didn't really, they actually always let me watch whatever I wanted. But my earliest memories aren't of the films. I remember with my father, my father and I would sit down and we'd watch, you know, Adam's Family and Twilight Zone and Dark Shadows. Uh, you know, again, when I was probably four or five years of age. And then, uh, I don't know, I, I couldn't even tell you the first horror movie I remember seeing, but it was young, you know, I might have been six years old. It probably was like Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein or something. Yeah. Uh, me into it. But uh, yeah, and I think I get that from my dad, because still to, to this day, my dad's not influenced me with a lot of bands, but I've influenced him. Like I remember being in seventh or eighth grade and blasting social distortion out of my bedroom and my dad walked past he's like what are you what are you listening to this is amazing so i turned him on to social d and still to this day like if social d has a new record out you know i'll call up my dad like hey did you get the new social d album yet um so it, it, it's just uh you know music and literature and film have always just been a very big part of my life and uh i think before anything it was my love of literature and i was writing before anything i think that uh you know before i ever discovered that i wanted to be in bands or or make films i had been writing seriously since about the age of 11 awesome um so. I, I looking looking into you and researching you I, I noticed that uh uh you learned how to play the piano fairly quickly yeah i did it was really honestly within probably a month of having uh, having a keyboard um i always knew that i could play an instrument if i had one i just never growing up when i was in bands when i was like the funny thing is and i'll give you a funny story a lot of people don't see me this way but i was actually really athletic as a child and mm -hmm. uh my family actually had high aspirations of me getting a full scholarship either for football or basketball uh because i was just such a good player but around the age of 15 i discovered rock and roll and women 
<laughs> and uh, decided that that's it. I, I don't want to do sports anymore. I had been playing sports in leagues since I was six years old, and uh, when I that's when I first got on my pee, first pee wee football team, and then I played baseball and basketball, and so I was I was quite the athlete. But uh, around fifteen, I discovered music, and that well, not discovered, but I really decided that hey, you know, I want to start being in bands. And I was always a lead vocalist. I was always in punk bands, and I was always the lead singer. And uh, I think just it was easier that I didn't have to worry about going out and buying equipment. And uh, I was also in, in choir in school, so I knew that I could sing and, and had a pretty decent voice. So I just was always the front man. And then when I got into my early to mid-20s, I was in a death rock band um, called Black Mass 99, where I was the lead vocalist. And uh, one of my best friends growing up since childhood, since we were best friends since kindergarten, he had an old uh, Lowry keyboard that he had got, and uh, he was ready to get rid of it and get a new one. He said, hey, do you, do you want this keyboard? I said, I would love it. Thank you. And within you know a few weeks, I had already composed uh, an EP. Hmm. It was like five or six songs, and it was very orchestrated and very gothic and doomy hmm. and... Uh, uh, and within that month, not only did I compose that EP, but I got to open up for one of my rock idols, which was Eva O uh, of the now long to, since defunct uh, death rock band Christian Death out of Orange County, Los Angeles. Uh, yeah. There. So, uh, yeah, that that was pretty cool. That that would have been really cool. Um, that's like uh, my childhood dreams coming true right there. <laughs> so you yeah, really you you know uh, you worked in in film and in the music and now with with the book i'm just i'm just curious do you have a favorite mode of expression is is like you know do you like film more than music are they all equal well honestly for me if i had to pick and this is honestly the route in which i'm going with my career i don't get me wrong i love film but i was i never aspired to be a filmmaker that was all accidental for making Sam Samhain Night Feast. I get so used to the American audience, but Samhain Night Feast, um, and that was that was purely a twenty-minute short film made for myself and my friends, just basically as an excuse to drink and have a good time. And we were pretty fed up with Hollywood about what they were doing with the horror genre. You know, we were sick of remakes, we were sick of sequels, and we just wanted to make a twenty-minute short film that we wanted to see. And I never never expected anybody else to see it. And then somehow, uh, Tim Gross and uh, you know Mark Fleming from uh, the Bastards of Horror Short Film Fest, or Charlie, I'm sorry, Charlie Fleming, found out about the film, and I found out they were showing it. So they gave me two free tickets to come and watch, and uh, I didn't take it seriously. You know, I thought I'm going up against seasoned filmmakers, and I have no idea what the hell I'm doing. So I. You know, back then I was rowdy and I showed up with a case of beer and was getting drunk outside beforehand. <laughs> and uh, lo and behold, you know, it ended up being voted the best film of the, of the film fest. So I thought, you know, if we could do this without any schooling or any effort, what could we do if we started a production company? But but really, with my love, uh, it, it's always been in the literary world and also with music, uh, with film. Even though I'm signed now. Uh, it's 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 very difficult because even though I have a, a major distribution deal, I still have to self fund all my own films. Which mm -hmm. so still, therefore, my films are being made on a very micro budget, uh, and it's very disheartening because as a writer, I know that uh, you know I honestly feel I, I, I write very very good stories that 
a lot of the times when you're working on a micro budget, you don't have the funding to be able to do everything that you would want to do to make that story stay true to, you know, the actual script and or the novel. There's only so much you can do with hardly any money. <laughs> so yeah. uh, it's, it's, it's really frustrating. And right now I'm working on a 1920s black and white silent horror, which has always been my dream. But then after this, uh, and I, I've talked about this a lot recently on other shows, is that I'm probably going to take a, an extended hiatus from the world of film and strictly just work on writing because writing has always been my first love. And uh, I'm already working on another novel, which is going to be a collection of shorts, and that's going to be entitled A Collection of Entrails. And it's going to be a lot of the poetry and dark stories that, I believe it or not, I still have some of the old uh, poems and short stories that I wrote when I was 12 years old. Hmm. And uh, they're still just as dark as things that I am writing nowadays. So I thought, well, this would be a really cool collection of, of modern short stories and going back and picking out some of my favorites that I wrote as a, a young child and putting a, a collection of stories together. Um, but really, that that's where my love lies. I would rather spend the rest of my days isolated in a cabin in the middle of nowhere just writing novels than anything else. So Yeah. I, I can... That kind of surprises me that, that you chose that one, but uh, you know, I, I feel the same way. You know, literature is my first love, so I get it. Yeah. <laughs> Although, I mean, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, I'm a very recluse person. Like, I, when I'm around people and I feel comfortable in my environment, I, I very much enjoy myself. But honestly, I spend, a lot of times I feel like Jack Torrance from The Shining because I purposely choose to spend 95 eight percent of my time you know uh isolated indoors with my animals and and my girlfriend and and i really don't like to venture out too much and be social i used to be very social and i've i think i just burnt myself out with the social scenes and i'm just very you know very recluse so it's to me writing is the most therapeutic form it was my first love and i don't really have to worry about interacting so which uh uh I can attest to it as well, because, well, actually, I'm pretty sure Michael can as well, because we're, we're both sort of the same in the sense that we don't really like uh, leaving our respective uh, places of residence. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I'm practically a shut-in. Yeah. No, that's good. So it's three recluses <laughs> talking on the radio. This is... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> actually, that, that was part of the reason why I started this, is because there's nobody... I live in a small Canadian town, and uh, there's absolutely nobody around here who uh, who likes the things I like. I'm like the uh, I'm like the freak. <laughs> and uh, so I wanted to reach out uh, to talk to other people who are doing the same things I am because uh, you know you, you even though you like staying in, you need to reach out and and touch base with people who have the same interests as you. At least I do. You do no. You honestly, you really do. And, and and as a matter of fact, as of late, I keep thinking that I really do need to get out and interact. Because in my younger days, I used to do a lot of public speaking. I used to do a lot of interacting. Uh, I'm used to doing Q and A's for my films and going to screenings and. And anymore, I just I, I don't do any of that. Yeah. And I know my publisher wants me to to go to conventions and promote the book. And now with social media, even though I'm not I'm not really a fan of technology, but it is wonderful in the respect that it brings folks like you and I together where we may not meet otherwise. And it also enables me to be able to promote the book without being directly interactive with people as well. So yeah, exactly. Uh, 
But yeah, it's just I found that when I was recording the narrative for my audio book for Neverlasting, you know, I just thought, wow, this just seems I, I pretty much my conversations when my girlfriend's not here is I sit around and I talk to my animals and I think, what have I become? Like I am such a shut in that <laughs> you know, my main source of conversation is, is with my dog and two cats, you know. But <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but I enjoy it though, really. Because yeah. they're loyal and I love them and uh yeah. And you know what? They talk back in their way. They do. <laughs> they really so, do. so going back to your uh, to your first movie, um, uh, Samhain Night Feast, uh, can you tell us a little bit what that movie is about? Yeah, sadly, it was a zombie film. And uh, I only say sadly, I, I joke, I jest about that, because, uh, you know, this was back in 2010 before Walking Dead and before yeah. and before the zombie craze really took the world by storm. And being from the Pittsburgh area, you know, that's the home of George Romero, the godfather of zombies with Night of the Living Dead. And uh, the really interesting thing about them is that they stayed in Pittsburgh all these years. And I got to know a lot of the, the people behind the scenes with Night of the Living Dead. I've even met Romero a few cool. times. And, uh, you know, so... Zombies were always my main love for, for the horror genre. Um, aside from the mental thrillers and psychological terrors, that's really where my true love for, for the horror films are. Um, but I made a zombie film, and then I followed that up with Caustic Zombies, obviously. Another, <laughs> another zombie, zombie film. film. <laughs> and I started getting pigeonholed. Like It was accidentally on my end, and just being from Pittsburgh and, you know... Everywhere you go in Pittsburgh, everybody loves George Romero. So it was just kind of inbred in me to to love zombie films. And then, you know, it got to the point where you were going to Walmart and you were seeing zombie shower curtains or zombie dish towels. Yeah. And then every movie that was coming out after that was Zombies. almost a zombie film. And I vowed I would never do another zombie film again. So since 2011, I have not made a zombie film, nor will I ever make another Um just because it's just too played out for me. And honestly, my love is more in the psychological terrors. I grew up as a fan of Alfred Hitchcock and uh, early German expressionist films. Cool. Uh, films like Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and Nosferatu yeah. and Metropolis. And so, to me, it's not really horrific to show a lot of blood and guts in film because that's we're, we're all kind of... Uh, I don't know the word for... Uh, I'm at a loss for words. It's just... A, it doesn't do anything for me anymore. Like we're just so accepting of that nowadays yeah. where your mind can create horrors darker than anything that we could show you on the screen. Very true. And that's the problem with a lot of the movies that I watch that are based off of books is that when I read the books beforehand, these monsters, these characters that I create in my head while I read the story is so much more terrifying than when five years down the road Hollywood does a film of it. And I'm like, man, that doesn't live up to what I built up in my head. And uh, I always aching back to Hitchcock with Psycho. Mm -hmm. Like with Psycho, when Janet Lee was in the shower, we never see the knife entering her. We never no. see her being stabbed. But the horrors that your mind creates just watching that uh, is far more terrifying than actually seeing the knife go into her. So yeah, it's that right. psychological suspense. And, that, and that's what I've always loved. So. Yeah, me too. Yeah, Jason and, and I talk a lot about about dread, and that's something that I really crave when I when I see a movie. is is not like what they try to do with their scares and the jump scares and that. I I like that overpowering sense of dread. If 
if I'm sitting in that dark space and I feel like it's the beginning of the roller coaster ride and it's just slowly cranking up and cranking up and it just never stops. That's so much more effective. Exactly. Most certainly. Yeah, atmosphere is definitely important. Um, I, I am a fan of, of gory, gory things, but uh, you know, there's and a there's place. there's nothing wrong with that either. No, yeah, there's, I mean, a, there's a place. But I, what I was going to say is that I, I prefer the atmosphere, honestly. Like Texas Chainsaw Massacre is still one of my all-time favorite movies, which is nothing but obviously you know slashing up. But you know, on a whole, I think that if you and I think that's also you know the literary side of me is that you know when we write, we can just really build things up so suspensefully in our writing that. Uh, you know, I really think that when when my next novel comes out, um, I, I'm quite proud of a lot of these newer stories that, the, you know, my girlfriend will come home and she'll say, oh, I'm so excited. Like, you know, I'll tell her I, I got 10 pages written today or eight pages. And she'll say, can I hear it? Can you can you read it to me? No, not yet, because I'm building up to it. You know, there's such a buildup before. Yeah. And, and, and I like to create anxiety you know, within people that they're like, oh, my God, well, where is this going? What's going to happen? And, and to me, that's that's one of the most terrifying parts. Now, uh, with Caustic Zombies, I, I heard that uh, there were some internal problems with the production that uh, gave you difficulty in releasing the movie in its full. Um, from my understanding, you have... Uh, uh, you have the uh, missing footage and whatnot back, so do you ever plan on releasing... Uh, Caustic Zombies back onto the uh, public anytime soon? You know, I, I may. It's one of those things where, even like with Tim Burton, Tim Burton doesn't like to show a lot of his earlier works when he started off because, you know, he was learning the ropes and that wasn't really who he was as a filmmaker. And for me, with the world of film, never aspiring to be a filmmaker and kind of having that thrust upon me, you know, I was really learning and making things up as I went along. And I think that where I'm at now with filming my next film, Noctambulist, we're nearly done. We have one more shoot date, and then the film wraps. Um, I, I think that, you know, I'm where I want to be finally in the world of film as opposed to where I was at in 2010, 2011. Yeah. And, you know, and, and even where I was last year with Blood on the Reel because that was a documentary that I put together. But really, it didn't involve me being a filmmaker to do that documentary because... Originally, I wanted to do a documentary just talking about the trials and tribulations of being an independent filmmaker and sharing some of my stories that I've encountered over the years. And it really was only supposed to be a documentary consisting of myself and maybe three or four other filmmakers that I knew personally. And once word got out about it, I had over 90 filmmakers contact me that wanted to tell their stories and be a part of the documentary. Well, some of those filmmakers were in New Zealand. Some of them were in Germany, some of them were in the UK. And obviously working on a micro budget, I didn't have the funds to go to these places to interview and sit down with all my gear. So what I would do is I would send them questions and have them film their themselves and send me the footage. So even with Blood on the Reel, it wasn't really a film that I made per se. Like it was a concept film, you know, and I asked other filmmakers interview questions and then we kind of just compiled the film and, and put it together in a documentary format. But as far as, you know, the filmmakers, they filmed themselves, you know, they did their own audio work and, and really the only things that I filmed on my end were, you know, myself, you know, doing my segment. Um, so, you know, I don't really count that, you know, as, as doing a film. Um, yeah. 
So I think where I'm at now as an actual filmmaker with Noctambulus is where I want to be. And uh, I, f- I feel like I'm going to be very proud of this film. But again, in the world of independent film, there's always a lot of inter- internal issues, which is one reason why I just kind of want to get away from it and just focus on writing. Because I don't have to worry about a cinematographer. I don't have to worry about an editor. I don't have to worry about a cast or crew or filming permits or locations. And, you know, there's just always... It never fails. When you're working on a set with 80 to 100 people, there's always going to be somebody that has a problem with somebody else and animosity develops and forms. And, you know, it's just, it's one of those things when you have creative people working together so closely for several months, friction's going to happen at some point. And it's just, you know, I, I love that world, but also too, when you're working on a micro budget, it makes things so much more difficult that people get frustrated. And then when you get frustrated, tempers flare and things happen, you know, and I just really honestly find it much easier and much more satisfying to sit down and write a book than to deal with all of that. So, I mean, maybe I'll, maybe I'll release caustic one day, but it's, it's, I, I feel like to the people that were involved with that film, I owe it to them because they put time and hard work into it. Um, but by the same token, I, you know, there's a there's a point where you can't really resuscitate the dead. Like, why why go back to something that really, quite frank, you know, something that quite frankly died six years ago, you know, and, and try to resurrect that? It just seems kind of silly to me. Yeah, yeah, I, I can I can understand where you're coming from on that. Um, uh, but you know, uh, there is the future to look into as well, and uh, you're working on some pretty interesting things right now. Yeah, I mean, with with Noctambulus, that is with my love always being in in film noir and and, and ex- German expressionist films. This is really, honestly, I think, and I know that probably my distributors, when they hear this, they're probably going to be rather saddened. But if if I do decide to leave the world of film, um, this is the film that I, I think that I could be very happy to end it on this note by saying that I finally made the you know film noir expressionist type film that I wanted to do. Um, but I can't dismiss and completely say that this will be my last film because Neverlasting was actually meant to be a film. I had actually written Neverlasting as a film script, which was originally entitled Moen Armkara. And it was going to be a very dark animated horror film. We were going to use stop motion animation and have these creepy puppets. And we were building sets on a 12 inch scale. And Doug Bradley, who actually played Pinhead in Hellraiser, was going to do the narration for the film. Mm-hmm. And we we launched a very successful Kickstarter campaign, or maybe it was uh, maybe it was one of the other crowdfunding campaigns. This was four years ago, and it might have been Indiegogo. But irregardless, we had a very successful crowdfunding campaign that allowed us to start the film and we started building these amazing sets and halfway through production we ran out of funds Mm. and at that point the sets had overtaken the flat in which i was living in and we needed to rent a warehouse but we didn't really have the funds to rent a warehouse and rent a flatbed truck to move all of the sets to this warehouse so the film kind of came to a standstill and uh I actually was so distraught over the film that I was just drinking myself to death. Every night I would drink a case of beer and, uh, you know, I, I just, I, I got really inebriated one night and I'm sitting there in this, you know, I was living in a doll world 
for literally, you know, I was living in this doll world on a 12 inch scale with mausoleums and cemeteries and creepy castles and, and, uh, looking at the potential that this film had, but we didn't have the budget to do it and, and continue it. And I was just got really inebriated and I just smashed the entire set. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I, I remember, uh, I remember calling up, you know, some of my, some of my artists that were working on that and one of my best friends, Jason Kolar, and I was just like, you know, Jay, I, I have to tell you, I smashed the sets. And he's like, I can understand that, you know, uh, because they're, because whether you're a painter, because I, I, well, Jason Kolar, he's my tattoo artist. He's also a horror artist as far as paintings. And uh, there's been so many times where, you know, he was nearly finished with the painting and, and just took a knife to it, you know, and threw it in the trash because something frustrated him with it. And I think as artists, we're always tormented and we're always frustrated. And uh, we have a, you know, we just have this inclination that sometimes you just have to destroy your baby because you love it so much and it's not going where you want it to go that you just have to abort it. And uh, that that's more or less what happened to, to the Moen Armkara set. And um, it's a film that I've always wanted to make, but I realized that instead of doing stop-motion animation and building sets on a 12-inch scale, that it's going to be much easier to do digitally, except for I don't do computer animation. So, you know, the the script sat on hold for years, and Jason had actually mentioned to me, he's like, Johnny, that was such a good film script, you really need to do something with that story. So I completely rewrote the film script and adapted that into Neverlasting and then I, obviously I changed the title for Moan Arm Car to Neverlasting um, but I've recently been in touch with several artists uh, and we're really trying to to get this book adapted into a film again so mm -hmm. uh, you know so I can never say that I'm completely out of the film world if I can get Neverlasting created as, as a animated film then that would be my next venture for film yeah um the uh, the prose for neverlasting is very interesting because uh it really does harken back to uh you know Edgar Allan Poe his poetry and you know even his short stories um but it makes me want like, cuz I heard the audio version mm -hmm. um so I, I I'm wondering what does the uh what does the I'm really curious what the uh illustrations look like and in in contrast to the prose yeah, uh, well, if you go on to, if you type in Neverlasting by Johnny Daggers on YouTube, you'll see roughly maybe a two and a half to three minute teaser trailer that we put together to promote the book. And it has perhaps half of the first chapter of my dialogue. Uh, but accompanying that is also some of the illustrations, which okay. were done by, which were done by William C. Cope. And they're very gothic in nature and very stark. Uh, to, to coincide with the story itself. And uh, the one thing, and I love the compliment from TE Magazine that they do compare it to a modern-day Edgar Allan Poe, he's always been my favorite literary figure, but by no means was I trying to emulate him when I wrote Neverlasting. I've just always written in a very archaic style. Um, if, even if you go back and look at the short stories and poetry that I wrote when I was 11 and 12 years old, it always had that very old-world type style to it um i honestly don't feel that i belong in the era in which i'm living in um i feel and i get told this quite frequently that i'm an old soul and that a lot of the things that i'm attracted to are from the early 1900s up to you know the 30s 40s and 50s and after that i'm lost i don't belong in this world of technology and i i just I, it, it's just hard to explain but 
But uh, with the Poe reference, that was a great honor. And I found out that there are so many odd similarities between Mr. Edgar Allan Poe and myself. For instance, I was born on October 7th, which is Edgar Allan Poe's birth date. Mm -hmm. Um, Poe has always been my favorite literary figure. But unbeknownst to me, I never knew my grandfather on my dad's side growing up because my grandfather had passed away when when my dad was only three months old. So my father never knew his father. And so obviously I never knew the man. Uh, But I found out a few years ago that, um, you know, my grandfather... uh, he he had a proclivity for for alcohol, and he I found out that he would come home from the bar every night rather intoxicated, and he would sit down in his recliner and make my aunt read him Edgar Allan Poe every night before he fell asleep. So I'm like, really, that's crazy because Poe was my favorite author. Now I find out he's my grandfather's favorite author, and I was born on Poe's death date. And then being from Pittsburgh, I just. Uh, about three years ago, I ended up moving to Baltimore, which is the hometown of Mr. Edgar Allan Poe. So now I reside in his hometown, and that was the move was more or less due to my relationship that I'm in, not because I wanted to be in Poe's hometown. And then, so now it's pretty cool because when I do go out, I get to frequent the bar in which Edgar Allan Poe was found laying outside, uh, you know, day, two days before he passed away. Uh, it's called the horse that you rode in on saloon. And uh, so there's just all these weird similarities and coincidences between Mr. Poe and myself. So I think that Neverlasting was uh, was the perfect release for me. And also, too, unlike the world of film where it was thrust upon me, with the literary world, uh, I actually had a say in what I released and in, in the direction of which I go in as an author and as a writer. So uh, I'm very proud to, to have Neverlasting be my first release. I think it's a very good uh, indicator is to the body of work which will follow. It, it may not be as archaic and rhyming fashion, um, but just that very dark uh, sense of writing, which Mr. Poe did so well. Uh, can you tell us what Neverlasting is about? Well, it's about... It's your traditional gothic, tragic uh, love story, more or less. And... I've always been fascinated by the loss of love, and the easiest way that I could sum it up is whether we lose love intentionally, you know, whether we choose to end a relationship because it's not working out for us, or whether they choose to leave us, or whether we do find that soulmate that we spend the rest of our lives with, at some point in time, we are going to lose our love whether they leave us or we lose them or death takes us. And so Neverlasting is a tragic love story uh, where you have these two characters uh, who are happily betrothed and uh, shortly after their wedding ceremony, an unspeakable curse which has been put upon the land comes to life and rips these two lovers apart. And now they're stuck in the afterlife trying to somehow reunite and... uh, and deal with the, with their struggle of, of losing one another just after having wed. So to me, it's just always such a tragic thought, you know, and, and to me, I think it plays a lot on, and I think this is a common theme that you'll see a lot throughout my stories from here on out is uh, dying alone. You know, that's something that's always scared me. Um, you know, I, I often think about Again, going back to that four-year-old child of me that was found crying on the on the kitchen floor, you know, and thinking, contemplating how many years of life I had left to live, you know, I still often wonder, like, when my time comes, will I have had a chance to say goodbye to my loved ones, or will I be taken suddenly, or, you know, will I be alone 
or you know, will I have them by my side? You know, how how is this going to happen? And and that's a very scary thought because I think we all would love to have our loved one near us, holding our hand and being there with us when we pass over, but. We have to face reality and think that sometimes that's just not a possibility, and sometimes we don't get to say goodbye to our loved one, and yeah. we, die, we die alone. So that's, that's a very tragic uh, theme, I think, that, that runs through a lot of my stories, if not uh, blatantly, but very subconsciously, so very subtly. Yeah, and that, you know, that is a scary thought. Like, um, I think uh, the three of us could maybe uh, claim that we have a, perhaps an obsession with uh with death and mm-hmm. uh, there's a reason for it it's because we're all headed there and uh yeah uh you know it's something i think about a lot and it's similar to you johnny <laughs> because you know i have i have a son now and that actually changed a lot of things for me because right. uh because he's now you know big part of my world so i totally understand what you're talking about but you know when you talk to normal people they they just don't seem to uh to understand that no no they really don't in fact there's a lot of people that i know that won't even talk about death my stepfather being one of those he hates anything associated with death he doesn't like to hear about it um in fact one of the catalysts for me writing neverlasting was my grandmother who uh from the time I was born, she was like a, a second mother to me. I spent every weekend at my grandparents' house. Uh, my name for her was Nanny. She was always my nanny. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I, that's, I'll refer to her as my nanny, but that's, it's my grandmother. But uh, one of her, she was always the most, uh, she was always my strongest supporter in my family. She was always the one that embraced my talent, no matter how dark it was. Even if she didn't understand it, she always pushed right. for me. And, oh, that's all right. She always rooted for me. And um, I took care of her when, when when her final days were near. In fact, she has a dog, which I now inherited. But uh, when she had maybe, she had a problem with her heart. She had a bad valve. And we knew that uh, she could go at any time. And so she lived in this big house alone. And before I moved to Maryland, I actually took care of her for a couple years by moving in with her. And she uh, helped me out. I was going through some financial hardships. So we both kind of always took care of each other. And I was there to make sure that, you know, she was tended to and uh, we just had this beautiful relationship and it came to time where I had to make a decision on whether I was going to stay back in Pittsburgh or whether I was going to move to Maryland and uh, you know she was like you need to go you know you've taken care of me long enough you need to go I'll be fine and I promised her before she died uh, I said you know I don't want to think about it. You could live another 10 years, but if something happens to you, I want you to know I'll take care of your dog for you because I'm a huge animal lover. Mm -hmm. So where I'm getting at with this is her dream for me was always, she's like, Johnny, you're such a good writer. You're such a good storyteller. Uh, Someday I'd love to see you do a children's story. Well, Neverlasting is written in a very dark kind of morbid children's fairy tale type bedtime story. And the only reason that I really wrote it that way is I dedicated it to my nanny, because shortly after I moved to Maryland, she died. And I blamed myself for that because I thought, you know, I should have been there for her. Like, I think that she finally just let go and said, okay, I can finally move on. You know, Johnny just moved to Maryland. My health is declining, and she felt comfortable with herself to finally pass on. Uh, But when she died, she died alone. Um, In fact, she was laying in her home dead for three days before anybody found her. And Her dog was laying at her feet the whole entire time, her loyal dog, which I I now inherited. And she's like, she's my everything, this little pup. But, you know, I had a really hard time with that, thinking that, you know, I really blamed myself. Like, 
how dare my nanny be left alone dead for three days before anybody found her and she didn't get to say goodbye to anyone um, although I do think that she did come to me and say goodbye now that I think back upon it there's some supernatural things that kind of happen but that really kind of catapulted me into wanting to do Neverlasting and dedicate it to her and uh, it's kind of the closest thing to a children's story that I would ever write would be Neverlasting uh, but again you know that's the thing it's like I would have loved to have said goodbye to her unfortunately life didn't work out that way so when thinking about death and how we're all going to die am i going to be alone and found three days later or am i going to have my loved one by my side with my animals and you know it's 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 so difficult to, to think about but it's something that has plagued my mind and I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with yeah yeah i totally understand that and michael he i know you uh uh <laughs> you're you're in the same boat I am every every birthday of mine. I start running the numbers to see how many years I might have left and what I can accomplish right. in that time. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. We I think artistically we all do this, and the one thing that my girlfriend hates, um, which I really should just uh, it, it's I should stop, but I can't help it. Anytime I'm working on something new, even my book publisher Gary uh, from Burning Ball Publishing. Um, I emailed Gary and I said, I need you to know something. If I die before Neverlasting comes out, here's my girlfriend's contact information. And like the same thing, if I'm working on a movie or a book, I always make sure that I tell my girlfriend, honey, if I die in the midst of this before it's finished, you need to make sure that it sees the light of day. You need to make sure that it just doesn't go un unseen. And uh, so like Michael said, you always wonder about how many days you may have left. The sad thing is... is we never know, you know, yeah. tomorrow I, you know, I one time fell asleep at, at the steering wheel and I, I, when I had fallen asleep, my foot weighed heavy on the accelerator and I went through a telephone pool doing 85 miles oh an my hour. God, that's terrible. Yeah. So quite frankly, there's a good chance, you know, technically I shouldn't really be here today. It was the ambulance and the paramedics and the, the police that showed up to the scene said, we don't know how you survived it, let alone all I had was a scratch on my neck from the seatbelt. So... <laughs> You know, we can be taken at any time, and that's something that terrifies me because I, I don't want to leave anything. Um, in fact, Leonard Cohen just passed. Yeah. From uh, a Canadian, you yep. know, and uh, one, one of the greatest musical influences who I adore. I, I'm a huge Leonard Cohen fan, and I was just watching uh, or listening, I should say, to the final interview that he conducted before he died. And he said, You know, this sounds so cliche, but I like to. He said, When you have your house in order, there's something very peaceful about it. So he knew that, you know, he had cancer and he didn't have much time. He got his house in order. He got all of his affairs in order. And he has a lot of poetry that he's working on that uh, unfortunately won't be released until now after his passing. But he said, you know, I want to make sure that I tied up all my loose ends. And he said, that's a very cliche expression, but it's so true. He said, you know, uh, when you're working on things, you want to make sure that even after you're gone, that some of your work can still be released and put out there. So it's, it's you know, God bless Leonard Cohen, rest in peace, and uh, I hope that he's that he's well where he is right now. But he, he really said it, you know, quite eloquently and, and, and very realistically about putting your affairs in order before you die. And luckily, he had the... Uh, he had the chance to do that. He wasn't taken too too. Well, he was taken too soon, but you know what I mean. He knew that his time was near, and he was able yeah. to get his affairs in order. Where yeah. we we don't know if we're going to have that opportunity per se. I, I saw a quote from one of his final interviews where he said, and it really struck a note with me because you know he was uh, he was 
uh, how old was he? He was 80-something? 82. Yeah. 82. And he said that he was uh, ready to die. And at the time when I read that, I didn't know how old he was. I thought he was maybe 60 or 70, right? And so I was like, wow, like... This this is a this is a fellow who really you know is sort of like uh, you know like me he thinks about his mortality, yeah, and, and well that comes through in his uh, his lyrics and poetry too, right? Yeah, he's always written you know uh, I, I believe Bob Dylan even said that you know when you listen to Leonard Cohen's work it's like listening to scriptures because it just had such a you know sometimes overt and sometimes very subtle religious uh, aspect of things. Um, but, you know, his newest album, which just came out in September. So, I mean, his new album came out literally two months before he passed. I, I was glad to see that he released that and that whole entire album. Um, you know, I think the first track is called Entitled You Want It Darker. And just the whole album just has a dark undertone about meeting his maker and being at peace with death. And, uh, you know, he even mentioned that in his final interview that he's like, you know, I've had time to, to accept this and make peace with this. And... I think that's fantastic. I, I often wonder, am I going to be able to have that luxury of making peace with everything before I die, or am I going to be taken so suddenly that it'll become, you know, I'll be taken by surprise. Yeah. So, yeah. So, um, so and this is just really one of probably the most depressing interviews you've ever had. <laughs> no, you know what? In, in all honesty, uh, I, I like talking about this stuff because it doesn't make me feel so, I guess, alone because this is the way I think, too. So, uh, uh, Well, I feel more alone than ever. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> well, I apologize, Michael, but uh, <laughs> these things need to be addressed, I feel. And yeah, it's... I know. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so you released uh, uh, Neverlasting recently. Um, has it been doing well? Is it getting a lot of good uh, recognition? Yeah, the the reviews have been outstanding, and from what I understand, you know, it's selling very well for being an independent, you know, more or less independent, even though it was done through a publishing company. Uh, I didn't self-release it, but uh, it's still, you know, Burning Ball Publishing, they're wonderful. I love Gary, and I, I love being on Burning Ball, but they're a smaller publishing house, you know, so, um, you know, they, they don't don't really get a lot of attention or as much attention I should say as some of the bigger publishing firms um, but it's getting out there and the people that uh, that are picking it up and, and the critics absolutely adore it and um, you know the one thing that I to the people listening out there I know of a lot of people that have purchased the book that uh, they haven't left a review for it yet on Amazon or Barnes and Noble and they'll email me and tell me hey I just picked up your book I love it um but I, I want to implore those people that if you have purchased the book to please, I know I don't, sometimes it takes me three months after a purchase before I go back and review something, but reviews do mean a lot to artists because it, it shows other people, um, you know, it's just, it's not really that I want your praise, although I do enjoy your praise. Um, I don't want it to seem egotistic or an egomaniac where I want to see your reviews on there, but it helps to sell the book. So if you enjoyed it, you know, those who have purchased it, uh, please write a review so that others may feel more inclined to go out and purchase the book as well, because, uh, you know, we don't make a lot of money being artists. It's so. very, yeah, that's very true. Uh, uh, a lot of writers uh, really, uh, you know those Amazon reviews; they really help. Uh, the more reviews yeah, you get, the more Amazon is willing to share your book with uh, with list, certain lists and emails and whatnot. So, so yeah, it's definitely a, a huge uh, a huge help. Oh, were you going to say something, Michael? 
I, I was just saying that that's always a good reminder. Um, you know, leave those reviews. It's really important. Yeah. So uh, speaking of writing books, uh, you're working on a movie now. You say it's almost wrapped up. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have any plans for writing any books in the future? Like uh, yeah. ideas? Yeah, I'm working on a collection of short stories and poetry oh, called... You mentioned that, uh, yeah. Yeah, it'll be entitled... Um, a collection of entrails and it's some of it will be novellas and some novelettes in there and then some i'm very uh you know my girlfriend always jokes and says that she doesn't think i'm capable of of writing a short story because i am so descriptive um and everlasting was a little bit different because that was rhyming poetry and so i was able to be a little bit more brief in that but still convey a very uh i think you know be able to convey the story very well but when i'm writing an actual story i am very descriptive and so what may take someone you know what someone might be able to summarize in you know one page it takes me three pages yeah because of all the descriptions and detail that are that are in that um so with the collection of entrails it'll be some short stories some novellas you know some poetry some of the things that i have found that i still managed to hang on to that i wrote when i was 11 12 13 years of age um you know and, and it's it's so weird too because writing my entire life uh, you know, a lot of those things that I wrote when I was 12 or 13 years old, I can still recite those to this day off the top of my head. Wow. And I think, you know, how was I able to, you know, retain that information all these years? But I still have the journals, and uh, I, I would like to incorporate, um, you know, some of those poems and short stories in the new collection because I think that it will give the readers uh, a chance to see where I've come from and what my background is. And it's really, honestly, not much different other than my vocabulary got a little bit more <laughs> elaborate over the years um, than it was. But even back then, I, you know, I, I was always the weird kid that I sat there and I read dictionaries and thesauruses <laughs> as a child. And, uh, you know, even when I was a senior, I had all my credits in to graduate. And so I only needed elective classes. And my senior year, instead of just taking random you know, classes to just fill up on. I, I, my senior year, I had four English classes, you know, um, so I filled up on English electives, you know, and then I also filled up on art electives. So my senior year was nothing but uh, English classes and art classes. And so I just, I've always been, uh, always been a fan of, you know, the English language in the written word. And um, so I, I think that, uh, I think my next collection I'm I'm very much looking forward to and then in regards to my film that I'm just finishing up I've actually spoken to the publisher and had mentioned to him that I'd actually like to convert this into a novel um so that there'll be a film format and then there'll also be the book format so uh yeah and I think with writing you know there's so much and I'm sure that Michael and yourself can attest when when you're hit with an idea for for a book or a short story or a poem you know it just comes to you at the most random and awkward times. Yeah. Like yeah. right now, right, right now I'm writing a story for the collection entitled beyond tomorrow. And it happened. I started writing it a week ago and my wife and I, well, my girlfriend or I may as well call her my wife at this point, we were watching a movie and probably 15 or 20 minutes into the movie. I just needed to jump up and grab my laptop 
And she's like, what are you doing? Why aren't you watching the film? And I said, because I just had an idea for a story, and I really need to write it down before I forget, or I'll be in the grocery store at the checkout line, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, an idea will come to me, and I can't get to the car fast enough because I always have a pen and paper on me. And most of my writing, I still write on, on, you know, with pen and tablet as opposed to my laptop, Um, but because I have this fear that the laptop will crash and my story will be lost forever. So I try to write everything and uh, on paper, but uh, it hits us at the most inopportune time sometimes, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> uh, but we have to do it. And so I don't know. I digressed. I don't know where I was. There was once a point to that for me saying, <laughs> that, but uh, I've since digressed and lost my train. Yeah, I think it was uh, uh, like uh, moving on beyond your next collection. Uh, uh... Yeah. Oh yeah, with the stories and the writing. Thank you for reminding me. Uh, I just feel that like there's su- I could honestly pump out, you know, novel after novel with writing. Where with film, you know, films take a year to complete, a year and a half to complete. So I find myself that I could be a much better storyteller and be a lot more uh, productive as a writer than a filmmaker. So yeah, well. Uh, it's been really awesome talking to you, Johnny. And uh, uh, before we go, is there anything else you'd like to plug? I would really uh, just like to tell the readers out there, if you are a fan of traditional Gothic horror f- stories, uh, traditional Gothic love stories that revolve you know, just around the loss of loss and tragedy, please check out Neverlasting. William C. Cope. I gave this man so much credit. You know, I, I approached William when I started Neverlasting because I knew that I wanted it to be illustrated. And I, I told him, look, man, you know, I, I'm not wealthy by any means. I, I don't really have any money to, to pay you to illustrate this book. But if you're interested to, you know, get your work out there and be a part of something, you know, I would love to have you do some work for me. And he was kind enough, you know, to illustrate the book and did such an incredible job at making uh, the illustrations true to 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 the dialogue and the story so a big big thank you you know to mr william c cope and uh you know i also want to thank gary at burning bulb publishing for the support that he has given me and uh, not only did he like never lasting enough to release it as a book but after he read it he said you know with the rhyming poetry the way that the story is told it needs to be an audio book and uh this is a big step for Burning Ball Publishing and mm-hmm. in releasing a novel in three different formats. So we're we're testing the waters with this, seeing how an audiobook sells, you know, along with uh, you know, the ebook and also the paperback. And I'm really pushing people to buy the paperback because I know probably Michael and yourself are the same way. There's nothing I you know, Morrissey I'm a huge fan of Morrissey's music and the Smiths' music. Um, and Morrissey has this weird fascination with with stamps, and he loves the smell of of, of you know the stamp yeah. blotter, and uh, says that it's rather erotic and enticing. And I feel the same way with an old book. Yeah. Like when I walk yeah. into a used bookstore and you smell the tinged yellow pages and yeah. the old bindings, like that's just such a a romantic, almost erotic in an odd way type smell that I love the physical copies being presented before me. So I'm not a real big fan of the ebooks, but the ebooks are illustrated. But I, I implore people to try to purchase the paperback and uh, the audio book as well because it, it's just uh, the narrative and the dialogue with that is is uh, 
you know, something that I feel needs to be heard as well. Um, so yeah, just please support Neverlasting. And, uh, you know, as far as my films, I'm working on Noctambulist. So if you're a fan of film noir and German expressionist films of the early 1900s, I think that that's something that a lot of people uh, would like to check out. It's just so different than what we see nowadays with modern films. That, yeah. Uh, it's something I'm looking forward to because I love, I love that stuff. So, uh, so I can't wait to see what that looks like. And I, I, Having heard the audio, I want to get the uh, the physical copy of Neverlasting myself because I really want to see those uh, uh, those illustrations and I want to see the words and I want to you know soak in the words. Uh, I highly recommend that uh, people go out and get it myself. Thank you. And one thing, too, for the readers and yourself that do buy the physical paperback, um, when Gary and I talked about putting the book out, we didn't want the book to look modern. So the book cover has a very matte finish to it. It's not gloss it has an old it has an old look to the outside of the book and then the pages are very antiquated uh they're stained and the pages inside the book look very old so we wanted to stay true to the story which was written in that very archaic fashion and also make the book look that way as well so i get excited and i love that yeah yeah, thank you. So, you know, I love the idea that hopefully I'm still alive in 30 years, and then the book actually real, really will be old. And then since it was printed to make look really old, you know, it'll just look uh, even cooler. Even yeah, cooler. So exactly. Uh, so where can where can uh, fans of yours reach you if they want to uh, they want to talk or uh, ask you questions? They can always reach me at my official website, which is johnnydaggers.com. Um, also, they can find me on Facebook for Neverlasting. If you go to Facebook forward slash Neverlasting Book, that's the handle for Neverlasting. And then my official page is uh, forward slash Johnny Daggers Official. Uh, and then on Twitter, my handle is Johnny Daggers number two afterwards because I forgot my login to my old account. So this is Johnny Daggers <laughs> two. Uh, you can reach me on Twitter. And I do try to respond to everybody, even if it takes me some time. Uh, I try to stay in correspondence with those that reach out to me. And I feel that we owe it as artists to, uh, you know, I don't like that whole mentality of, you know, we're better than people to me. I'm just an average guy. And if you reach out to me, I want to stay in correspondence or at least message you back. And I, I try to keep that connection with with my fans, whether they're fans of the film or fans of the books, so uh, if you message me, I will respond. If you tweet at me, I'll tweet back. And uh, you know, I like to have that relationship with people. Awesome. Well, speaking of correspondence, uh, we would like to have you on the show again when uh, when your movie yeah. comes out and uh, when your next book comes out. Thank you, guys. It would be an honor, and I am very much looking forward to coming back. This hour flew by. I feel as though we only spoke for 10 or 15 minutes, but I, I feel that the conversation was very uh, rewarding. I, I feel very happy, and it was very dismal by other people's perspectives. Uh, but for us, I, I think it was right at home for the three of us, so I enjoyed yeah. it. Well, there was that little dismal part, but, uh, you know... Uh, uh, we got past it. <laughs> yeah, and I'm glad. That, I'm actually glad that Leonard Cohen worked its way in. He worked his yeah, way into the conversation. So rest his soul. Uh, he will be missed, but he left a lot of great work behind. So yeah. uh, you know, I'm sure that uh, you know Canada is very proud as as we are proud of him as well. Yeah, I think he's a worldwide phenomenon, and uh, you know, I, I I have to say I'm a little proud that he comes from Canada. Uh, he comes from a very beautiful city of Montreal, and. Uh, and he's uh, he's definitely uh, Canada's soul, I think. I agree with that. Yeah, I would be very proud of myself if I was you. So 
All right. Well, thank you, Johnny. Yes, Michael, Jason, thank you guys. I really appreciate it and look forward to talking to you soon. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a nice evening, guys. You too. Ready. Okay. 